My name is Noah, and I will be the host of The Overshift Pod. This is a weekly podcast where we will be going over all things baseball-related, and I will be giving you my opinions on all things baseball-related. I'll go over some of my favorite players to watch. I'll give you my opinions on what teams should do in the offseason, and I'll talk about some things that I saw in the past week of baseball and some things that I want to see in the next week of baseball. So sit back and enjoy the ride as we get into our first ever episode. So the first topic that I would like to talk about are some games for next weekend, Labor Day weekend, that I will be watching and I encourage you to watch. So starting on Thursday, Thursday through Sunday, next Thursday, September 2nd, Milwaukee and San Fran face off at 3.45 Eastern time. As many of you know, Milwaukee is in first place in the NL Central and have basically won the division. The Reds are competing for a wild card spot. The Cardinals are also hot and in that race, but with their outstanding starting pitching and Willie Adonis putting up an MVP year, Milwaukee has essentially clinched the NL Central. So on Thursday, they will be playing in San Fran against the San Francisco Giants, who are in first place in the NL West, in first place in the NL, and in first place of all the league. Whether or not they are actually the best team in the league is up for debate, but there's no doubt that they have been outstanding this year and that Gabe Kapler is deserving of manager of the year. So Milwaukee and San Fran play on Thursday at 3.45 Eastern time. This isn't really a notable pitching matchup, but when you get a potential playoff preview, a potential NLCS preview, you should be watching regardless. Later that night, Boston faces Tampa Bay. Currently, Tampa Bay is in the lead for the AL East, and they look like they could get, they could win the AL. Um, and that would giving them the one seed, and that would mean that they face off against a wild card winner. Boston is currently in control of the second wild card spot, but who knows? With games against the Yankees, the Rays, the Blue Jays still remaining, they could win the division, or they could miss the playoffs. So, um, even though they are three and a half up on Oakland and three back of New York, I could see them getting the first wild card, winning the division, or not even making the playoffs. I'd say the last one is the most realistic for them, as they've been kind of skidding recently. They had a huge lead over the Yankees, which they just blew. And I don't mean a single game. They had, like, two weeks of terrible play. The Yankees had two weeks of amazing play. They're now on a 12-game win streak, and as Michael Scott once said, oh, how the turns have tabled. <laughs> um, regardless, Boston versus Tampa Bay at 7:10 Eastern on Thursday will be a great game with Evaldi on the mound. Not really sure yet who will be pitching for Tampa Bay, but regardless of who it is, regardless of if they go two innings or seven innings, they have the best bullpen in the league to back them up. They have my favorite player in the league in their lineup, and that's Wander Farthill. I'll talk about him later and talk about just his greatness at such a young age. That should be a great game to cap off a great series. Now, over the weekend, I have two games each day that I want to watch, and I'll give you three of them and then go over a series where I will be watching every night. You should be watching every night if you're a baseball fan. And if you you live on the West Coast, I expect you to be watching all nine innings of all of the games. But starting off on Friday night, Houston, Houston Astros will be in San Diego to face off against the Padres. Now, a couple months back, it looked like the Padres could potentially win the NL West. They could, we could see them hosting 
the winner of a wild card game in a five game series. We thought, oh, going into the season, the Dodgers and them looked like front runners, but then the Giants came out of nowhere. And now the Giants are taking a commanding lead of the NL West. So about three weeks ago, maybe a month ago, we were thinking, at least we'll get one game, San Diego versus LA, with the season on the line. And winner will get to face off against San Fran. But with injuries to Fernando Tatis, the Dodgers making blockbuster deal to acquire Max Scherzer and Trey Turner. The Padres have really fallen behind um, in both the division and the wild card race. Currently, they're two games back of the Reds for the wild card spot. They're not even in the wild card game if the season ended today. And that puts them 12 and a half back of the Dodgers for the first wild card and 15 back of the Giants for the division. So it's safe to say. If they get in, it will be as the second wild card. Now, they do have Tatis back. You Darvish made his return on Thursday. And so those are good signs, but they have the toughest schedule in the league remaining. And playing Houston in a three-game series isn't going to help, even though they're at home. Houston has all but won the AL West. They have a pretty commanding lead, six and a half up of Oakland, seven and a half up of Seattle, 14 up of the Angels, and the Rangers just don't even matter at this point, 32 back. But that's a Friday night game at 10-10 Eastern with Joe Musgrove on the mound. That is a game that I will be watching. I can say that Musgrove has struggled here and there. He had an outstanding performance early in the year, which I'm sure we all watched in Arlington. But I will say that the Padres are just, nothing looks to be going well for them right now. Tatis has, he had, I think he homered twice in his first game back from the IL. Excuse me, I'm dealing with a bit of a cold. But since then, he has just not been himself. Could have to do with his injury. Could have to do with he's just in a slump. It happens to everyone, right? Freddie Freeman, who I consider to be just one of the best pure hitters in the league, he's up there with Juan Soto. Those guys were both slumping until June. So everyone slumps. Tatis is a superstar. He could win an MVP. As a Phillies fan, I obviously want to see Harper win MVP. I obviously think that Harper deserves it. Um, but if we miss the playoffs and we're under 500 now that Reese is out for the year, I don't really know if that's reasonable expectations for him to get the award. But hey, the Padres could also miss the playoffs very easily. I'm not sure if I really see them finishing under 500, but you never know. So regardless... That's a Friday night game that I will be watching. We've got a great lineup in Houston going up against a pitcher who's shown flashes of greatness in Joe Musgrove. Now, on Saturday, the Oakland A's will be playing in Toronto at 3.07 Eastern time. These are two teams in the race for the AL wild card. Currently, Oakland is three and a half back of Boston, and Toronto is six and a half back of Boston, which means that by then, who knows, they could be separated by a game, and then one team sweeps the series that drastically changes the AL wildcard picture. One team wins the series that could still change the wildcard picture. Anyways, on Saturday, Jose Barrios, one of my favorite players to watch, is on the mound. He struggled a couple outings ago against L.A., but other than that, since he's gotten to Toronto, he's been very good. He was very good in Minnesota. People think that Toronto gave up too much in that trade, but you forget that Toronto is a big market. Toronto are like the Yankees of Canada, right? They can afford to buy at every deadline, and I'm not saying that they should be buying at every deadline, but 
They can afford to do that. They can afford to extend Barrios this offseason. Um, they can also afford to bring back Marcus Simeon, go after a big-name outfield free agent, give Vladdy a huge extension, you know? So, whatever they want to do with Bichette, Vlad, they have the money for it. Robbie Ray is having a Cy Young-type year, and he's going to be a 30-year-old hitting the free agent market, so um, he's going to get a ton of money, whether it's for, from them or not. The fact that he's putting up a Cy Young year, you extend the qualifying offer because he's worth that type of money, and then maybe you trade him at the deadline if he does accept it, but then otherwise you get a pretty good pick. Um, so regardless, that's a team that I'm watching. I love the Blue Jays. I think that they can, they're dangerous. They have one of the best lineups in baseball. They have two really good pitchers at the front of their rotation. They also have Manoa and Hengen Ryu, who have both shown flashes of greatness and having Barrios, Ray, Manoa, and Ryu as your four guys in the playoffs could potentially be dangerous if they somehow get out of that wild card game, which I'm not sure if I could see them doing. But regardless, that's a game on Saturday with huge ramifications that I will definitely be watching. And then on Sunday, St. Louis will be in Milwaukee. Milwaukee will try to hopefully, for them at least, end St. Louis's playoff hopes. St. Louis has been on kind of a run recently. They obviously have um, Bader. They have Lestella. They have Arenado, Goldschmidt, Yachty, who is coming back for one more year and then retiring. Um, one of the most polarizing players in baseball, Yachty, for sure. But then they have Reyes in the bullpen, who he gets save numbers, so that makes him good, right? Mm. It's kind of debatable about how good he is. But Flaherty is the big X factor for them, and he just went back on the IL. So with some shoulder inflammation, I believe. So I don't know if I really see them being serious to run, but this is a series against Milwaukee where they they face Corbin Burns on Sunday at 2 p.m. That's the game that I will be watching, 2.10 to be exact. But... If they can somehow, because they only face Burns, they don't have to face Woodruff or um, Peralta, I believe. So if they can somehow only, if they can take two of three or somehow get a win off Corbin Burns, who I believe to be the third best pitcher in baseball, um, that would be insane. That would be huge for their playoff hopes. Um, in both the wild card, and then maybe you can make the division winnable, not only for you, but for Cincinnati, as Cincinnati seven and a half back, St. Louis is twelve back. Let's say that's five and a half back and ten back, as Milwaukee has to go to San Fran or play San Fran anyway. Then somehow St. Louis sweeps you. Now all of a sudden Cincinnati is really in it. St. Louis is kind of in it. And St. Louis is definitely in the wild card after that. Um, so I'm definitely watching a game on Sunday because you have Corbin Burns going against a good lineup. And he's great. Saw a little bit of a decline in production after the spider attack instance. But he's still a great pitcher. Now, the big series this weekend, Dodgers vs. Giants. Before this season... Well, people always say that the Red Sox and the Yankees are the best rivalry in baseball. I disagree. Dodgers and Giants. The fan bases are crazy. People don't realize this. But you have people literally like hospitalized regularly during Dodgers-Giants games in the stands. The fights are crazy. Um, the people love their teams out there. They're both from New York, which just makes the history all that much more exciting and in my opinion, they're the best rivalry in baseball, historically speaking. And then now they're arguably the two best teams in baseball, which makes it so much more exciting. They're fighting for that NL West division. Um, San Fran is 
as as I'm recording this, up two and a half on LA. But you know, anything can change when it's that close. They could be a five and a half when they face off. They could be tied when they face off, right? Um, but yeah, so they face off Friday at nine forty-five. It's it's Price versus Long, but maybe Discalfani comes back for that. I'm not entirely sure what the timetable for his return is. I just know that's the slot that he would be pitching in if he does make a return. And I'm not saying that he will, but I think that's the slot that he'll be pitching in if he comes off the 10-day IL and is ready to go. He has some, like, ankle sprain, I believe. So that's Friday at 9.45 p.m. Should be a great game. Saturday at 9.05 p.m. And these, every time, is Eastern time because that's where I live. Um, Saturday at 9.05 is Urias versus Cueto. Should be a great matchup. And this whole series is in San Francisco, which gives them a little bit of an advantage, I'd say. And then Sunday, on Sunday Night Baseball, 7.05 Eastern, we've got Walker Bueller versus Alex Wood, the former Dodger, versus the Cy Young candidate Dodger, current Dodger, Walker Bueller. Um, You're looking, the Giants have so many old pitchers, and it's like, how are they doing well? How... (laughs) How, the Giants are so old. How are they good? But Gabe Kaffer is just a really good manager, and it pains me to say that as a Phillies fan. But at least I can say we made it who we are. He made so many terrible, terrible mistakes in Philadelphia that if he doesn't make, I don't think he's the manager he is today. If he doesn't get run out of Philadelphia, he's not the manager. He's, he's not manager of the year, right? But anyways, those are the games that I will be watching next weekend, over Labor Day weekend, my last weekend before I go back to school. And the next thing that I would like to discuss is some very poor managing that I saw in a Padres-Phillies game just about a week ago. Um, let me set the scene for you. Saturday night... I missed the first three innings, I believe, of the game. In San Diego, Nola starts off the game and is perfect through six. He might have been perfect through seven. I don't know. In either the bottom of the seventh or the bottom of the eighth, Brad Miller made an error. Then the guy stole second on Nola. He's very easy to steal on. Trent Grisham. So it must have been seventh. I believe then Tatis got out. Machado singled. Grisham scored. And Machado stole second. And next thing you know, we've got a, I think it was a tie game heading into the top of the nine. And Nola, even though he was no longer perfect, was still pitching well. So Girardi, who's, I thought he was going to be a good manager. <laughs> He is not, but I don't know if we'll be back next year, but he chooses to hit with Nola in the top of the ninth, which was questionable in and of itself. Um, Alvarado, our, sadly, our, our best lefty reliever, um, was on the IL at this point, and our three best relievers near us. Bradley and our closer, Ian Kennedy, had all thrown over 20 pitches the night before. Kennedy came in for a four-out save. Bradley got into trouble. Nearest through like two and a third or something. So we could use all of them, but it was like you don't really want to have to use them, especially Bradley and Nearest being that they're not our closer, Right. We didn't trade Spencer Howard for that. Um, Regardless, Girardi lets Nola hit. Nola steps up to the plate, and he hits a a double, right? And this is where Padres manager Jace Tingler makes just a terrible mistake here. So he steps up, Nola steps up, they have a righty in, and Nola hits a double. 
Tatis made a pretty bad play on it in right field. So now Nola's on second, no outs, top of the order. Dubal Herrera's up. And I know a lot of people don't like him. And I'm not saying what he did. I hate him as the person, right? A terrible human being, but he's a pretty good baseball player. This is a guy who will swing at any pitch and somehow make contact with it, and he's fast. But he's no, like, hit machine. So, for some reason, Tangler decides to bring in a lefty, because you have Herrera, Segura, Harper up left. Herrera's a lefty, Segura's a righty, Harper's a lefty. Harper is the big fish. At this point, I believe Real Muto had the night off. Um... And, because, yeah, this is, we we end up losing the game on a walk-off wild pitch. Because Andrew Knapp is a terrible catcher. But, behind Harper is Didi, who's a lefty, and McCutcheon, who's a righty. Both struggling, like, terrible recently. They've both just been really bad. But, Tingler decides, I'm going to bring in a lefty to pitch to a double. And as soon as the game comes back from the commercial, easily the worst announcer I've ever listened to, Ruben Amaro, says, well, Adubel's going to bunt Noel over to third. And he, he, he knows what he's talking about when it comes to baseball, right? He's been around um, the MLB long enough to know that. So basically what I'm saying is everyone knew that he was going to bunt, but somehow Tingler didn't. So Adubel bunts him over to third. Now, tie game, top of the ninth. You've got to run on third. One out, fly ball, you know wins the game, but, um, because Tingler brought in a lefty, now you go lefty-ready against Segura, and he walks Segura eventually, right, and I do believe that if you keep a ready in against Segura, you have a better chance of getting him out, and not saying necessarily you don't walk him, um, with the righty that they had had in before, but I'm not really sure. And now you've got one out, first and third, and there's a base open, but it's second, and you don't really want to walk Harper now, right? Even thinking about who's behind him, and you have a lefty in for him, but they do end up walking. And maybe the pitcher just didn't have his stuff that night, but I... Now you have the bases loaded. He ends up hitting Didi. I think he hits McCutcheon, two-run score. Um, regardless, I don't understand why he brought in the lefty for Oduble. When Oduble's just going to bunt. You can, now you've got a runner on third, one out. If you bring in the right, if you keep the ready in for Segura, you probably get Segura out. Right? And I don't think Nola's just going on contact on a ground ball. Right? From third, with one out, is a pitcher, and right? So, I don't understand. So, you get Segura out. Now you have two outs. You can bring in now the lefty for Harper, Didi, McCutcheon. Because the three batter minimum, right? It's always in the back of your mind. It's not like you need to bring a righty back in for McCutcheon. Because McCutcheon's not hitting well. But, but then... The lefty can still walk Harper, and you still first and third no-run score. And then, I don't know. I just think it was a terrible managerial decision. Followed up by Girardi. Now you have a two-run lead. You put Nola back out there, bottom, bottom nine. You're up two. He gets a runner on, and he's over 100 pitches right now with Cronenworth up. And... This is where you yank him. You're up to a runner on, bring in Kenley. I don't care that he threw 20 pitches the day before. Bring him in. But no. Leaves in Nola. Cronenworth takes him to deep right center. Deep center, basically. Jankowski makes an amazing play to try to even come close. It was He was never going to catch it. Crazy athletic play. But I still don't understand the managerial decision there from either Tingler or Gerard. And that's just something that's been puzzling me for a while now. And now on to some news, per se. So, 
John Heyman broke the news that Castellanos will most likely, or he's expected to decline, opt out of his contract. He has two years left, about 17 mil each year. Um, but he thinks they can get more than the open market. He's a great player. So Castellanos is gone. What's next? If I'm the Reds, you have to extend Jesse Winker. I tweeted about a week ago, Reds should trade Jesse Winker, but that's when I thought that they could realistically bring back Castellanos. I don't think he wants to be there. I think he wants to be in a team that can pay him, but not a big market. He doesn't seem to be like, a, like oh yeah, I need to be in L.A. batting. Like He's not like Machado, and that's not like a knock on Machado, but they're just different types of personalities. Harper, like Harper needs to be in the spotlight. So he came to a city where he could be like, in Harper's mind, he kind of has to be like that guy. He wants to be that guy. He thinks he is that guy. And you have to have that mindset to get to the point where you're a top, you sh- should be a two-time MVP this soon into your career, right? A guy who's going to get to 500 home runs. Harper's going to retire as one of the best players of all time. And I, I'm not saying like top 10, but he's going to retire as a Hall of Famer. And to retire at that status, you need to have the mindset that I'm that guy. And he has the mindset of I need to be that guy. I need to go to a team, a city where I am that guy. Machado has the mindset of I like I wouldn't be in the spotlight. That's where Machado wants to be, right? He thrives in big pressure situations, right? That's fine. But Tassianos doesn't strike me as the same type of guy, so I don't think he'll be going to LA. But back to the Reds, they need to extend Winker. Because it's pointless to have Winker and Castellanos, but if Castellanos is gone, you need to extend Winker. And you need to extend Castillo. Because Castillo, I know you have Hunter Green down in your system, but um, you need to make sure that you can hold on to, to your other franchise cores. India's still a rookie, so you don't really have to worry about that. But also, you have Moose and Suarez on bad contracts. You need to get rid of at least one of them. At least one of them. The team is young. Let them grow outside of Vado, right? You've got Winker, you've got Castillo. I know you have Wade Miley and Sonny Gray, who can be good for you in the next two years, maybe. But Hunter Green, Luis Castillo, um, and then you've got guys like Jonathan India and Jesse Winker and Aristides Aquino. I don't know how much of their, how much part of their future he is, but then like a guy in the minors like Reese Hines, who I particularly like, third baseman, um, Emily.com thinks that he's going to end up in the corner outfield, but regardless, I think it's very important for them to just make sure that their core doesn't keep leaving and let them kind of grow. Vado's good, but I know he's old, but you still have him in a contract, right? Let him be the mentor. You're overpaying for him. That's fine. Um, I just think you can't afford to lose Wayfair and Castillo because then you went through this whole process for almost nothing. You know what I'm saying? The post-Vado, Brandon Phillips, Homer Bailey, the post Johnny Cueto, that whole era. If you went through that whole era and to try to get back here for nothing, if Castellanos just leaves, like, and then Winker and Castillo want to leave too, right? You you just have to send them. It's crucial, crucial. But now, if you're looking at this from the Castellanos side, right? Um. So potential suitors that can pay him, that have, are, so you have to be a big market to pay him, but he doesn't want to be in the spotlight, spotlight. And I see a lot of people saying, oh, he wants to come back to Chicago, he should come back to Chicago and play for the Cubs, but you feel like he has to be mad that he didn't, he wasn't able to come back the last time they traded for him. So I'm looking at teams that are kind of on the up and coming, younger not quite in the spotlight, but can give him big money, that have a hole in right field, that can contend for the future. And two teams jump out. They're both in the AL. 
Toronto, and Chicago. Both of these teams could use a right fielder. Both are just another corner outfielder. Another big bat in their lineup. Um, I think both these teams would be willing to throw the money out there. And I could also see, a, potentially, what I'm envisioning is like a bidding war between these two teams. Like, who's going to give Castellanos more? And then let's say Toronto is willing to give him more. Then I think you see Chicago probably sign Conforto to a one-year prove deal where if Chicago wins the bidding war, Chicago ends up getting Castellanos. I think Toronto would be a great place for Conforto. Basically what I'm saying is those are the top corner outfield, right field, the guys, and I think they would both fit in both those places. So those teams need to be thinking Castellanos and Conforto. And I think those guys, Conforto and Castellanos, would both love to play and would both fit well in those situations. So I was watching the Little League World Series game. And the, or the, like the Sunday Night Baseball, the Major League game. And the Angels are a pretty good team, right? They have Fletcher, they have Walsh, they have Stassi, they have um, Rendon, they have Otani, they have Trout, they have Adele, they have Iglesias, right? They need some pitching help, obviously. But the biggest hole to me is shortstop. And they only have three top 100 prospects two of which, Marsh and Adele, are on the active roster. So they don't have the capital to go out and make a move for a shortstop, right? They also have $670 million committed to Rendon and Trout, and they're going to have to pay Otani at some point. So because of that, I don't think there are any shortstop agents for them, right? Because you have the Javi Baez. Javi Baez isn't in the tier as the other guys, but he wants to be, right? He wants to be paid a ton of money. I don't think Javi Baez really fits there, but... Excuse me. Um, you've got guys like Correa, Seeger, Story, even, even Simeon, right? These are guys that are going to... Simeon's older, so he's not going to, like, get a 10-year contract worth $300 million. But I could see all these guys being paid AAV over $25 million, right? The Angels can't afford that. But there aren't any mid-level guys, right? After that, it's a huge fall-off. You see guys like Freddie Gallus, who he's good. I love Freddie Gallus. But, eh, Right? Like, Brandon Crawford would have been the perfect guy, but he obviously signed the extension. He's staying in San Fran. They love him. But, like, that's that's the level player that they need, right? So maybe Simeon does fit that in terms of financial standpoint, but I don't think that they should be overpaying. So how are they going to fill that shortstop void is the question that I have. Well, I'm also trying to answer that almost. So people are saying that Fletcher could make a move to shortstop. I also know that Rendon can make a move to second, which means that you could sign a third baseman or a second baseman. So some good second, but I, I don't like the idea of moving Rendon to second, right? I would just keep him at third. Anyway, some second baseman that they could go after that are a little more mid-level. Guys like, and this is, he's a third baseman, but he's listed as also a second baseman. I don't know why. Eduardo Escobar. You've got guys like Cesar Hernandez, Jerickson Profar, Chris Taylor. These are guys who can be your everyday second baseman if you're fine moving a Fletcher to short. Um, which they might be. But if not, you need to trade for a shortstop. And this is what two teams in the NL East have shortstops that are on expiring deals that I think should be traded. You've got my Phillies and the Braves. If you're the Braves, you can go out there and you can give Marcus Simeon. You're going to resign Freeman. He wants to be there. right? That's why you made these trades to make this playoff push so that you can convince him to come back. 
that's my theory as to why they're making this push, because without Acuna, you're not winning the World Series, I'm sorry. You choked a 3-0 lead with Acuna, with a healthy, somewhat healthy pitching staff. You're not gonna, <laughs> you're not gonna do that. You're not gonna win the World Series. But, um, especially with the bullpen they have, they're not gonna win the World Series, but Dansby Swanson, people think it's so much better than he is. Dansby just really isn't that great in my opinion. He's not on an expiring deal. So that's the type of guy where if I'm the Braves and I want to go out and sign Marcus Simeon, if I see, okay, I've got guys like Soler and Duval and Pache and Acuna in the outfield. I've got Freddie Freeman and Darno and Austin Riley and Ozzie Albies. Like, where do we improve outside of the bullpen? Shortstop is the spot. So you can go out, you can sign a guy like Marcus Simeon and then trade Swanson, right? And the Angels can then pay Swanson, extend him, you know, give maybe two years, a little bit of money. Maybe, I don't know how much they would pay him, but that's a mid-level player that I think the Angels could do well with. Another one is Didi Gregorius, who's on my Phillies, and we're paying him too much money. That's the problem, right? I don't think he deserves to be paid as much as Marcus Simeon is making, right? That's that's just highway robbery. And we have a guy like Brayson Stott in the minors who could huge shortstop for agent market. Not that I think we should target anyone out there, but there is a huge shortstop for agent market. So you could definitely see us signing one of those guys. I don't want us to, but we could. Don't really think we will, but again, we could. So I'd say Gregorius's job is <laughs> there's a high chance that Gregorius is traded. And he fits what the Angels want. And if you're the Phillies, you're trying to get rid of Gregorius. You're either to get back a very mid-level prospect, very mid-level prospect, or because the contract is big, you have to add a mid-level prospect just to get rid of Gregorius, swap mid-level prospects to get rid of Gregorius, right? Regardless, I think the Angels have multiple ways to show to fill the shortstop void, whether it be moving Fletch over and going after second baseman or trading for a shortstop. Regardless of how they fill it, they should not fill it through signing a shortstop. Um, and that's my opinion. They could go after Simmons, who they've had in the past, but I don't really like that fit. Again, so that's... Those are my thoughts on the Angels' shortstop situation slash problem. And now we are on to my favorite segment. When I was prepping for this episode, I was just so heavily looking forward to this segment. Um, and all I'm going to say to get into this is uh, let's talk about Wander, right? Wander Franco. 26 game on base streak as a rook, as a 20 year old rookie. Not only is he a rookie, but he came up halfway through the year, and that's why people are kind of ahead of the AL Rookie of the Year race, right? He's clearly the best rookie in the league by far, but he's not going to win Rookie of the Year for that reason exactly that he just hasn't played enough. So this 26 game on base streak, right? The only other guys in recent, in like somewhat history, that have had a 25 plus game on base streak under the age of 21 are Ken Griffey Jr. and Robbie Alomar. Those are Hall of Famers. Wander Franco is, so when I'm looking at the best just pure hitters in baseball, right, there are three that stand out Freddie Freeman, Juan Soto, and Mike Trout. These guys have great discipline, great vision, a great approach, a beautiful swing. They put the ball where it needs to go. And if a kid is, when I have a kid and my kid is asking me, hey, should I be swinging like, like Shohei Otani? I'm going to say, well, Shohei Otani is very good. But no, look at Mike Trapp. Look at Freddie Freeman. Look at Juan Soto. And look at Wander Franco. Wander Franco is the fourth best, like, pure hitter in the league. And, yes, I'm saying that he's a better pure hitter than Tatis, Otani, Ronald Acuna, Vladdy. And 
I'm going to get killed for that. But you have a kid who can just kill the ball from both sides. He can go gap to gap. He can spray the ball all over the field. He can hit for power. He can hit for contact. He draws walks. But the most important thing is he doesn't strike out. He has a strikeout rate of about 10% since his on-base streak, right? And that is insane. That's just crazy. Crazy wow. Crazy great numbers. Um, and he's a generational talent who's also, like, I know he makes errors, but he's also a pretty good defender at his shortstop. And he's learning, I think, by about the end of next year, he'll be an above-average defender at shortstop. That's what I think, right? And if Tatis makes a permanent move to the outfield as of next year, and I'll talk about a little later why I think he should, and I think he will, but I, mean, I take that back. I'm not entirely sure that he will. The way that their GM wants to just make all these deals, I'm not entirely sure that he will, but I think that he should stay out in the outfield um, to keep him healthy, right? Because that's the main goal, if he's battling injuries this early in his career, you just gave him a 13-year deal, right? You should want to keep him in the outfield. So if he's out in the outfield, I think by the end of next year, we're going to be saying, or we should be saying, that Wander Franco is the best shortstop in the league, right? And what I'm saying by that is that by the end of next year, he'll be better than Bogarts, Correa, Lindor, Trey Turner, and Corey Seager, and Trevor Story. And I stand by that because Trevor Story, he's above-average defender, Trey Turner, Corey Seager, they're all, like, above-average defenders. I think Wander can get to that point defensively by the end of next year. And if he gets to that point defensively, being able to just absolutely mash from both sides and still being fast puts him over guys like Trey Turner, who I know he's hitting well for power this year, and he's looking like a five-tool player this year. I'm not sure he's going to sustain that numbers, those numbers. Um, guy like Corey Seager kills the ball, but on the base pass, right? I think Wander beats him out. Wander hits from both sides of the plate, right? Um, Bogarts is a terrible defender. <laughs> Bogarts is the worst defensive shortstop in the league. But so Wander being almost as good of a hitter makes him so much better than Sandra Bogarts. Even if he's not as good of a hitter, which I think he, I think he is. I think he's a better hitter. Right? Um, Carlos Correa and Francisco Lindor are the only, like, elite shortstops that are elite defensively. Lindor just is not hitting well the past two years. And maybe he has a comeback here next year. He also does hit from both sides, but I think Wander's just significantly better. You Like, Ahmed Rosario is having a better offensive year than Lindor, and Franco would never. That's all I'm going to say. Wander Franco would never. Um, and then Correa, right? Correa's kind of streaky offensively to the point where I think his... It'll be interesting to see what we get from next year on a new team. What team will that be? You know, all those different things. Maybe also if Simeon makes a move back to sure step, he's in this conversation. But what, all I'm saying is without Tatis, there are like 10 guys. No, not 10. Probably about seven guys that you can make an argument for as the best shortstop. And after next year, I think Franco will emerge at the front of that pack. Um, but the question about him and his future, his future is so bright. It's not Britain in Tampa, because in Tampa, we're looking at, so with a new CBA, there could be a salary floor, there could be a change to the arbitration rules, and that could just completely change everything to the point where he stays in Tampa for his whole career on a $400 million contract. Who knows, right? Who knows? But the highest first-year arbitration was $11.5 million for Cody Ballinger right after winning MVP. Cody Ballinger is really good. In my opinion, he's the best defender in the league, and I'll talk about that some other time. I know he's not hitting well, but he's still a very good player. 
I think Wander Franco will just be more accomplished after three seasons than Cody Bellinger. I, he probably won't have an MVP because of Shohei and Trout, but we're looking at a guy who should be, not saying he will, but should be a two-time Silver Slugger. Could potentially, if Correa moves to the NL, could potentially be a Gold Glove winner. I'm not saying that he will be. I don't. I'm not. I'm not really saying that he will be, but he could be, right? If he has a great defensive year. We're also looking at a guy who, I'm not really, like. He'll probably be an MVP finalist the next two years. He's going to be one of the most accomplished people entering their first year of arbitration ever. Soto is making like eight and a half in his first year of arbitration this year. But the highest ever is 11.5. The highest ever arbitration in general was Mookie Vets third year got 28 million. I'm telling you right now. Tampa Bay raised 2021 payroll is 28.5 million. They're not paying him a third-year arbitration worth that much. They're not paying him a huge extension worth that much. That's out of the question. If there's no salary floor, Tampa is not giving him the 400, 300, 350, maybe $400 million extension that he wants and he probably deserves. Tampa's not giving him that extension. But it, if, as long as there's no salary floor. But my question is, will they even be willing to pay him an arbitration? Because 14 mil... Seems reasonable for a fourth-year Wander Franco, and I'm thinking very far in the future, I know that. But that seems reasonable. Yet, that would be 50% of what their payroll is this year. I don't think they're willing to invest that much money into one player. I don't care how good he is. The highest they've ever paid someone was they paid Evan Longoria like five years, around 100 mil, I think. And that didn't really work out, and he's so much better than Evan Longoria ever was. But I don't know if, and they've kind of had this new thinking with under Kevin Cash of we're going to just play a ton of, like Kevin Cash is the best manager in the league. And that's why I think Wander's gone. That's why I think Wander Franco has two more years left with the Rays until he's traded in an offseason, and I don't know who's going to trade for him. I don't know what they're going to have to give up, but the, the clock is ticking on Wander Franco in Tampa Bay, and I would love nothing more than to see him play for a team that I already love. And I do love the Rays, but a team like the Phillies, maybe the Tigers, the Mariners, these are just teams that I like, but the White Sox. To see one of those teams go out and get him would be so fun, for me, at least. Now we're on to my last segment, where I will be counting down the top eight things that I am watching in in September. And I'm not talking about Wander. (laughs) Wander Franco is not going to be part of this. Sadly, I am watching him. He's probably the number one thing that I am watching. But um, I, I don't want to include him in this list because I just had a whole segment about him. But anyway, number eight, how does Luis G perform down the stretch of the year, right? Like, I don't know how they're going to use him, especially come playoff time, probably out of the bullpen then. I don't even know how they're going to use him now. You've got guys like Kluber coming back, like, they're finally getting healthy again. I don't even know if he's in the rotation right now. But I just love this kid. I think he's very good. He has a beautiful high fastball, a really good glove side. His fastball is just so electric. He can hit 97, 98. And when he gets it up in the zone, it's so unhittable because it almost has that rising feel to it. And it has a little bit of a young Zach Wheeler arm side. Arm side half for the plate. His fastball was straight. And it was fastball was flat. And straight. But when he threw it on the glove side, it would run back over the plate, which isn't what you want. Right? 
especially to a lefty, if it just has a little bit of run, that's like a beautiful pitch to hit. If it, you know, on the inner half for them, a little bit of run onto the barrel. Um, because they're really getting that barrel out in front, trying to fully extend. Lefties have that like natural golf swing, but Luis G, it, it runs on the arm side half just a little bit, enough to make it difficult for every hitter. Because it runs away from lefties away, like on the outside half of the plate. And for righties, it kind of jams them. But then on the glove side, it's so straight. It's so straight. It's just like a like a dart. Just And sometimes I think he could get beat by lefties on that. But as long as he gets the velo up and keeps it down, unless he's really trying to, like, go up with it, as long as he doesn't, like, get it, like, belt high area or a little below the belt, as long as he doesn't put it in that area for lefties, it's going to be a really effective pitch. Um, and then he's got a nice slider and a nice changeup, which just both have good movement, good speed. He doesn't really get a lot of chases. They're not really chase pitches, but he gets weak contact with them, which is awesome to watch. Anyway, I love this kid. One of my favorite young players to watch. Hate the Yankees, but he's the bright spot on their team, like, for me to watch, you know. Um, And, yeah, I'm excited to watch what he does in September. Anyway. Number seven is the NL East race, which (sighs) I made this list about a week ago when there were three teams in it. Now, the Braves have won the division, but it's still close enough to where I think the Phillies, we are good enough to make a push even without Reese Hoskins. I'll stand by that. If we can get Eflin back, came off the IL from his tendonitis and his knee. Then he was supposed to pitch, got scratched. Now he's on the COVID IL. It's kind of a nightmare. I love Eflin, but that situation is just not, it's not going well right now. We need him back if we want to make a push. Not saying that we can, but we have such an easy schedule. But the Braves just keep winning. The Braves just keep winning, and it's really annoying. But the NLA's race should be somewhat interesting. Number six is a potential Mike Trout return. He's the best player in the sport. Get out of here with the Shohei Otani BS. I love Otani. Second best player in the sport. But Mike Trout is still the best. Mike Trout is the best... He's still the best pure hitter, still a gold glove center fielder, still a huge threat on the bases. Mike Trout does it all. Um, and I know Shalai pitchers. I, I know what Shalai can do. But Mike Trout just, in the traditional five tool, that's just, uh, Mike Trout was almost built in a lab based off of the five tool, the traditional five tool blueprint. So to see him come back would be awesome. To see what he can do in September, I, they're not going to make a playoff push, sadly. But that should be, he's always fun to watch. Um, he doesn't have, like, the swagger that some other guys do, but he's still very good, obviously. And that that would be awesome. That will be awesome to watch, will be. Um, at five, I have Pujols' return to St. Louis. It's my first day of school. It's an afternoon game. So I don't know if I'm going to see his last at bat or not. But... He's a top three first baseman ever. He's so good. And to see him play his, probably his last game in St. Louis, what could be his last game in St. Louis, would, is just magical. It's going to be special, right? To see him and Yachty potentially like hug one last time, it, it's going to be so emotional, so um, so special to watch, basically. Now, at four, I have AL MVP watch. Shohei won the award. I'm not saying that. But he could also win Cy Young. And Vladdy could also get the triple crown. So I'm just watching both of those guys. Both of the guys in the AL MVP race. I'm not watching the AL MVP race because it's not a race anymore. But I'm watching both of those guys. Um, In September, it'll just be fun. I want Vladdy to win triple crown. I want Shohei to still bash a ton of home runs and win Cy Young. It's just great for the sport if that happens. Number three is something that I'm 
It's not like I'm excited to watch. I'm interested to watch how teams in wildcard races will deal with having elite-level prospects. Like, you've got a team like the Mariners, right? You have Julio Rodriguez. Um, the kid is special, and you're in a wildcard race. You have Jared Kelman. You have Kyle Lewis. You have um, Toro at third base. Like, you have all these... J.P. Crawford. You have all these young guys who are great, and it's like, do you call up Julio Rodriguez? Because you want to make the playoffs. But calling him up, it just gets him more... Exp- like, he's... A- I don't even know if he's on the 40-man, so I don't even know if he's going to come up and sit on the bench. But I think if I'm them, I'm putting him on the 40-man. I'm calling him off. I'm playing him in the outfield almost every day if that's what it takes to win, right? That's what I'm going to do. People say rush his development. Oh, oh, he might start off rough. That could kill your team's playoff hopes. But just being in a pennant race is so important for these young guys. You're building a culture. You have the best farm system in baseball. You have to capitalize on that. And then that also goes for teams like the Reds and the Padres, right? The Reds, you have Hunter Green. Put him, bring him up, use him in the bullpen, maybe even slide him into the rotation. That's a guy that just being around major league pitchers in a pennant race, that's going to help him so much. Being around guys like Wade Miley and Sonny Gray, Luis Castillo, like that's just so important to young guys' development that the thrill of a wild, like a, like a pennant race, the thrill of that is just going to be so helpful to these prospects. And then the last team is the Padres. If I'm the Padres, I'm putting C.J. Abrams at shortstop. I'm putting Crony at second. If you want to play Frazier, put him in the outfield, or put Crony at first and Frazier at second. Don't play Hosmer that day. You're getting to tease in the outfield. You have Grisham, you have Pham. Call up C.J. Abrams because... At the end of the day, for the Reds and the Padres, this is going to be so helpful to C.J. Abrams to be part of a huge pennant race. And if he's not playing well, you don't have to play him every day, but he should still be your number one shortstop down the stretch because he's the shortstop of your future. I think he should be. And with the GM who wheels and deals, the fact that they haven't given up on him for a, a, in a big trade is really important. It shows that they want him to be part of their future, as they should. But you always have the question of, with a GM like the Padres, right? He could always be traded. But if they really want to be part of their future, I think, especially now that you know Tatis is going to be out the field for this year, that's a perfect time to put him at shortstop. That's just my opinion. You don't have to worry about the service time thing as long as you wait until rosters expand. Number two is the Dodgers and the Giants' best rivalry in MLB. I've already talked about their weekend series coming up that I'm going to be so excited to watch. But the thing that's been I've been thinking about, I don't even know if this is possible. Maybe they play each other 19 times. I mean, this is a stupid hypothetical that would never happen. But if they somehow have to play one game for the division and the loser has to play in the wild card game, and you're the and you're the Giants. Do you throw Gosman in that game? Because if you're the Dodgers, you can throw Scherzer or Bueller, lose that game, throw the other one against the Reds or the Padres, win that game, and then throw Kershaw game one against the Giants, right? Now, if you're the Giants, do you throw Gosman? Or do you throw, like, Descalfani or Cueto? Because if you throw Descalfani or Cueto, you probably won't be the Dodgers. But then... In the one game where your season's actually on the line, you get to throw Gosman, right? Against, like, you Darvish. I don't know who's better. I'd probably still lead Darvish or Castillo, right? So you have a more favorable pitching matchup in that game, but then you're almost forfeiting the game against the Dodgers. It's an interesting hypothetical. Anyways, I'm excited to watch how that division shakes out at the top. And then number one is the AL East race. At the end of the day, the Blue Jays, they're 13 and a half back, so they're not going to win the division, I don't think. But they could get a wild card. The Yankees could still miss the playoffs. 
Boston and and New York can still win the division. Tampa, they're not gonna because they're the best managed team and in the division and they're in the driver's seat. So they're not gonna, but they're not so far up that they can't lose the division, right? I can see any of three teams winning the division. I can see any of four I can see three of these four teams. I can see a situation where you have three AL East teams in the playoffs, and I can see it being any three. Any three. As, or, the Rays are a lock, in my opinion. So the, those other two spots, the wild card spots, I can be seeing it be any two of the Yankees, Red Sox, and Blue Jays. I could see the Mariners and the A's making it. You only have one team, so the AL East is just going to be so fun to watch down the stretch. I love the Rays. I love the Blue Jays. I hate the Yankees. I hate the Red Sox. It's fun for me. It's fun for you. It's fun for ESPN because they get to show Yankees and Red Sox. They get to show Yankees-Red Sox wilder game. What do you think A-Rod's going to do, right? A-Rod's probably going to, like, like open, like, some $4,000 bottle of wine. He's so happy. And then I have to suffer through A-Rod on ESPN in a wildcard game, and I can't just watch a local channel on MLB TV because it's the playoffs. I might have to listen on the radio, on the MLB.com, on the MLB at that app, if A-Rod is doing a Yankees and Red Sox game. But at the end of the day, that would be good for baseball. I would hate it, but it would be good for baseball. So with that, that is the first ever episode of the Overshift Pod. Thank you for listening. Thank you for making it this far. And... Be sure to tune in next week for hopefully another great episode and peace.